Hi, welcome to the Roxback Pages podcast. This is Mark Pringle in the chair this week because my esteemed colleague Barney Hoskins is on the beach of St Beavis and Buttheads sunning himself in the West Indies. Or is it St Kitts and Nevis? Somewhere like that. <laughs> Swanning <laughs> so, around in the sunshine. <laughs> so joining me is our esteemed producer, Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Jasper. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Splendid. Right, well... To kick off, we're going to talk about the audio this week, which is John Tobler interviewing, or is it Tobler? There's some dispute, Tobler. I think it's Tobler. Okay, John Tobler interviewing Sid Vicious, dear old Sid Vicious. This is from Spring 78. His My Way single has just come out. We'll listen to a little clip first, where he's talking about the Sex Pistols split. Let's. Now we've heard uh, various other versions of the the split up of the pi- of the original pistols. Would you like to tell us your side of it? I'll tell you the truth. Um, I, I said before I I left for the states that if if John hadn't shaped up and become the performer that he used to be, that I was leaving the band. And he just got worse and worse and worse. Saying after the gig in Frisco, I just said that I I found John up and said that I didn't want to be in the band anymore and that I was leaving. And so that was it. The band broke up. They couldn't they couldn't go on without me because like not, they couldn't. I mean, if any any of the group had split, like it, it would have fallen apart. So we were too close. There, there couldn't have been any replacements. They couldn't have replaced Jones or Rotten or Cook or me. So like the band broke up. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that's an interesting take on it. He also uh, talked later on in the interview at some length about the pistol split, and he sounds really sad about it. Yeah, he's really quite upset in a sort of strange way where you'd think that maybe there was some animosity, but it it seems more that it's sadness. You know, I mean, first of all, he says in the interview that he's not on heroin at the time. I think that's probably a pack of lies. Yeah, he does sound a bit droopy, shall we say. Shall we say. But also, I think he just sounds depressed, because, okay, a few weeks back, we ran the him and Johnny Rotten interview together. Yes. He's much more... Vivacious and lively and yeah. funny. I mean, you still got the sort of laconic sarcasm and stuff in this one, but he sounds—he sounds low. He sounds really low. I mean, you know that in a way, his brief stretch as the Pistols' bass player and one uses the term advisedly because he didn't play on the album. Played, on, I think he played some bass on one track on the album. The rest, of the yeah, bass is, is it Jones. Anarchy in the? No, it's no. Bodies. He plays oh, apparently right, yeah. plays, plays a bit of bass and Bodies. Yeah, he sounds very low in this. And of course, the other thing he talks about is his then. His girlfriend, Nancy Sponge, and who he's very positive about, actually. <laughs> I mean, funnily enough, but but he reckons she's sort of going to take the music industry by by storm. By storm. Yeah, uh, I mean, he talks about her as his manager, and oh, she's she knows loads of people, and she's been in the music business since she was thirteen, which has basically been a groupie since she was thirteen. So yeah, it's not a long interview; it's about thirty minutes long, um, and it's rather sad. And of course, Sponge would be dead within months, and he would be dead within a year. We're running this interview specifically because today is the fortieth anniversary of his death, or yeah, that one of these. Just we, we, we uh, maybe it's tomorrow, but when I, yeah, I mean, that's when this will be live. That's so also coincidentally that. Uh, we're recording this on the 31st of January. It's actually kind of coming out tomorrow on, on the 1st of February. 
Johnny Rotten's birthday is today. His really? 63rd birthday. I had no idea. Yep, he's one day older than me. So we wish, wish Johnny Rotten a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Johnny. Or Leiden, as he's kind of meant, meant to be known. <laughs> So, so yeah, th- there we go, dear old Sid. We'll play another clip later on, which is specifically about him singing My Way. He talks in the interview about the movie, which at this point hadn't been named, but became the great rock and roll swindle. And I have to say that, personally, I think the only bit of the great rock and roll swindle which had any merit whatsoever is, funny enough, is Sid singing My Way. Really? I, I mean, I've not seen it, so I it's can't great. be the judge, but... It's, it's really good. The movie's terrible. He's I mean, quite snooty about it, in a way. He doesn't seem to care much. He's just like, I got, I got paid, and that's fine. Well, I got that's paid a, for my bit. Yeah, I mean, how much of that is a pose, you know? Fair um, enough. You, you, you know, I mean, his whole kind of shtick is, oh, I don't really care about anything. Exactly. How much of all of that is, yeah. a, is a pose, well, I guess? when he starts talking later on, not this that sex clip, but later on when he starts talking about it, and he sounds really sad that the band had broken up. I mean, you think that this is a guy who had been sort of like, swanning around, not doing much, and suddenly he's in the most important band at that moment. He gets to go and tour just some gigs around England and Europe, then he goes on the fateful American tour, the last American tour. And for him, it's like, this is the big time, and then it's gone like that. And yeah, I, th- yeah. I, think, he, I think he really felt part of something. He talks about feeling part of, of this thing, this movement, and... John Tobler actually asks him, would you want to reform any kind of band? And yep. he says, no, it's, we've done that. We've, we've said what we wanted to say. But it's tinged with this sadness about it having <laughs> not happened. So it's kind of confusing in that sense. With Sid, it's always a question is, is how much you believe everything he, he says. And the one thing about that, talking about the Pistols, is that really was the one thing that really sort of came from the heart, that the Pistols were incredibly important to him, however marginal his involvement in the band was. And I think he feels lost. I mean, he's trying to. He talks again in the interview about trying to get a band together with ex Johnny Thunders and Heartbreakers, Johnny Thunders, uh, ex New York Doll Johnny Thunders, and he talks about Thunders' unreliability. Well, Thunders is another junkie. God <laughs> Almighty! I was remembering you know. when I when I was listening to that. I was remembering the piece that we had up quite a while ago now with the death of Johnny Thunders. Yeah, and that was before. <laughs> they were getting together, so you know he's re- resurrected Johnny Thunders. For they did play, they did play some gigs together. I mean, Sid ends up in New York, of course, which is where Nancy was. He inverted commas killed Nancy. It's unproven, but most likely, and also where he eventually died. And he played some gigs. I think at Max's Kansas City, maybe CBGB's, which were regarded as essentially shambolic. <laughs> there isn't. There was an album release. This is a Virgin scraping the barrel of Pistols product called Sid Sings, which is mostly a li- that one of these oh, live dear. shows. Which I've never actually listened to. Have you not listened to, to it? No. Are you, do you want to, is the question. I don't know. A bit of me sort of thinks I really ought, you know, just for research purposes, right? <laughs> <laughs> I ought to. To be a well-rounded archivist. <laughs> of, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I think that's probably enough on... on, on yeah, well, I, did, I did want to ask one thing. To what extent do you believe his claims about being much more intelligent than everyone says. It's obvious that he is more intelligent. He's got a little bit more going on than, than he would like to present. But in, in this interview, it's pretty hard to tell, but in the one that we ran before with him and Johnny Rotten, he says certain things which imply that he's actually a pretty bright guy. He's certainly... He, he, he lampoons Malcolm McLaren fabulously when Malcolm yes. McLaren has his picture on his wall and Malcolm's saying, it's about the space around the chair. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and Sid's lampooning this. And 
to be aware of that as a bit of pretension requires a degree of sort of intelligence. I for think. sure, for sure. So it's 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 kind of it's kind of hard to tell. But. Much more than this, I did it my way. So, what next, Bobby Gentry? This is our free articles this week. Where we're featuring the wonderful Bobby Gentry. We have Holly George Warren looking back at the forgotten artistry of Southern songstress Bobby Gentry. She herself talking to a KRLA beat in. Los Angeles in 1967, explains what Ode to Billy Joe meant. And then we got Mike Barnes talking to Mercury Rev about their entire Gentry tribute album, The Delta Sweetie. They revisited it. Well, that's, that's coming up, right? That comes out next week or something. I, I, like be- I yeah. believe so. Bobby Gentry's fairly new to you. Yeah, I, I would say that the first time I consciously listened to Bobby Gentry as Bobby Gentry was yesterday evening. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously I you know, know the name and, and have heard Ode to Billy Joe and stuff, but I wouldn't say that I've sat down to listen to Bobby Gentry. May I point previously. out that Jasper is a, a much, much younger person than <laughs> Barney or myself. Um, what did you make of it? I really like it. I, I mean, it's not so much my thing, the whole country... Even I mean I like like some folk, but but in general that sound isn't one that I seek out that often. Sure. The sort of singer songwriter yeah. with the guitar. Yeah, Jasper very much likes jazz, which is why he's been nicknamed Jazzbo in the office. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, yeah. I mean, uh, I vividly remember Ode to Billy Joy coming out in '67. I mean, I'd have been 11 at the time, and it made the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Uh, it also has this extraordinary quality of no one really knows what it's about. Right. And she has had her excla- ex- exclamations. It's about death. It's about all kinds of things. It is southern gothic is a very good term. Yeah, for it. I mean it's great. It's a great narrative, yeah. and it's 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 sort of does the storytelling in song thing incredibly well. Absolutely. I mean, it's also worth pointing out that even though she's seen as a country star, she actually, even though she grew up in Mississippi, she. Lived most of her adult life in Los Angeles. Oh, really? Okay. She was also her prime, her own primary songwriter, which in those days, in '67, was very rare for a woman artist to write their own material. So you know, this perception of this country is slightly misplaced. Misplaced. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. She went on to make what three albums altogether? I think the one, indeed, which Mercury River, paying tribute to, is often regarded as her, her best, which is after Billy Joe. And then she walked away. I curiously think she disappeared. Yeah. Well, '78. She started working within the film business as a sort of producer. She's making records, she's doing a lot of television shows, she even had her own series at one point. In England, she was a very familiar face, she appeared regularly on English television. And I think she just got fed up with it, and did something which very few people are capable of doing. She just walked away, which I think is pretty Quite impressive, yeah, yeah, to be able to do that. She then, she then had three marriages, all of which lasted about ten minutes. Less impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on the men. We don't yeah, well, know about true. them. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps she, she yeah. did right. And she now, she now lives in a private gated community outside Memphis, Tennessee, apparently just two hours from the Tallahatchie Bridge of the song's fame. I think she's fascinating. I think she's made some seriously interesting records. I regret that... She, I think in some ways, as I said, it's admirable she did walk away. A bit of me regrets it, because as a songwriter, I think she could have had a, a more extensive career. But you know what? Good for her. Good yeah, for I mean, her. maybe she would have. you would have liked to have one more album in, in keeping with your, your four albums per person kind of theme. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, you know, you never know. But anyway, so that, that's that's Bobby Gentry, the marvellous Bobby Gentry. I think marvellous Bobby Gentry. I think I will go and listen to some more, actually. It's yeah. sort of... 
piques my curiosity, should we say. You know, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, a real talent. OK, so the next set of free articles... This is our featured writer, Andrew Bailey. Andrew Bailey wrote primarily for Rolling Stone, did some stuff for the English underground magazine Friends, and then went on for, to a fairly illustrious career in media and various descriptions. I found on the Friends website um, his piece about himself and how, how he got into it. He had actually originally been writing for Variety, really? and he got, he got the job because he wrote a classic Variety headline. It was when Alan Klein was at war with various members of the Beatles, and it says, Lennon bites apple and finds worm. That was his, <laughs> the headline he wrote. So he got a call from Jan Wenner. He said, who I found terribly exciting. He had become a legendary figure, stayed in expensive hotels and so on. I was most impressed. Everybody I knew crashed out on someone's floor. He came over and stayed at the Dorchester and had a limo. So he, he's offered this job working on Rolling Stone, basically as a sort of editor and writer. Also, had better pulling power than variety. Like most people, I was obsessed with the number of girls I could meet. <laughs> and saying, I'm from Rolling Stone, had cachet that, hello, I'm from variety, didn't really have with the kind of groovy girls Did I wanted it to not? get to know. I wonder why. <laughs> That's fantastic. So he went on to write extensively Rolling Stone. We got three pieces, an interview with the godfather of British blues, Alexis Corner, from 71. Interview with Mark Boland from 73, when Mark Boland was dreaming of cracking America, which didn't happen. Which he didn't manage, yeah. No. And then the last one is an article on Guy Pilliet's Rock Dreams book, which so is... Paintings of, of rock stars yep. in compromising positions sort of thing. <laughs> um, Not that I've seen any of them. It, oh, oh, do. Okay. It, 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 it's really good. I mean, uh, and it's a very, very good piece. Had a read of that yesterday, and uh-huh. it kind of struck me because I was wondering whether it would be possible today to for an artist to go and create a set of images like that of contemporary musicians and for it to have the same kind of cachet. I, I don't and think I don't so. Think, I don't think it would. Yeah. Just, kind of, I don't know whether that's due to the more widespread of, of pop culture nowadays yep. where everyone's got a little niche that they're in or every what it po- is. Every pop star's Instagramming themselves over right, and over exactly. again. Um, also, that, I mean, this, this is at a time when pop music was central to all of our young lives in a way that I don't think it really is these days. So for someone to sort of transgressively <laughs> reimagine these people in visual terms ha- had a genuine impact. And now, as you say, we're surrounded by satire. Everyone has taken the piss, frankly, out of everyone else. <laughs> Um, I just don't think there's the room vet there for, for, for Perhaps it. not. So, yeah, no, Andrew Bailey is a terrific writer. We got him on board recently. We've got a lot of more of his stuff to put in the Roxback Pages archive. And just just tremendous. Yeah, his writing, I think, really sort of flows in a yeah. way that's it's accessible without being basic or simple. I, I mean, aside from... The, the fact that he could pull better class yes. of chick as a consequence of writing for Rolling Stone. He was writing for a, a magazine which back then, we're talking about really 70, 71, yeah. 72, was probably at its best. It was a fantastic magazine in those days. If you see the kind of the tawdry ruin of Rolling Stone <laughs> oh, God. of the last 15, 20 years. If you want to get really sad, look up Rolling Stone online. No. And just, it's just, <laughs> it's full, just full of retrospective stuff on, you know, yeah. boring, basically. Um, uh, and pictures of half-naked women. Which and is, pictures of half-naked yeah, women, yeah. which is the other sort of... Which is pictures of half-naked women. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> in, in 71, 72, you had writers like uh, Hunter S. Thompson, Joe Hestasazi writing major political pieces, great music writing, and it was a really fantastic... Fantastic magazine. We got a whole stack of them at the back of the room we are precisely in now. Yes. And I encourage Jasper. To yeah, I'd, I'd love. I mean, I'd love to spend. I always think and say this. I'd love to spend more time sitting around in this wonderful 
dusty space um, <laughs> <laughs> feeding my hay fever allergies so there we go that's that's Andrew Andrew Bailey I, one last thing he says is I used to go to Friends Friends have said was this underground magazine in Portobello Road and Saturdays that's our neighbourhood that's our neighbourhood indeed it was the highlight of my, my week to go up there and score off Little Tony Little Tony was some legendary Friends associate and hash dealer and he said they had these little IBM typewriters that were actually making magazines they were actually making magazines on people doing artwork in front of you on tables nothing had prepared me for this. We had posh printers who did all this. There was friends ripping off every image they could find, doing it all on IBM golf balls and actually making a far more vibrant product than the supposedly professional techniques we used at Rolling Stone. Great. Which is a really interesting take on the underground press. We need to get more stuff. We have Nick Kent who wrote for Friends. We had Jonathan Green who wrote for Friends on Rock's Back Pages. We need more of that stuff. Do we have a decent selection of... No, we don't, but we have a, a friend of Rock's Back Pages who has a fairly good uh-huh. collection, which I intend to raid sooner or okay, later. Okay, good, good. Um, Look forward to that. Okay, what's loaded in the library? I what guess. is loaded in the library? Right. Well, st- <laughs> starting, <laughs> starting off once again, Record Mirror, 1962. This is an uncredited interview with Cliff Bennett. Well, it's basically Cliff Bennett talking about his enca- his recent, as in the previous week's encounters with Jerry Lewis. Cliff Bennett being sort of the British, rebel rouser, British rock and roller. Yeah, the, the rebel ben- rouser with the rebel trousers. No, absolutely. The uh, riff cliche and the rebel trouser, rebel trouser. He he was in a band called the Rebel Rousers, who were a very early British rock and roll band. And this is Jerry Lee Lewis's second tour of England, the first one which ended in ignominy when it was exposed that he had married his 13-year-old cousin. 13-year-old first cousin once removed. (laughs) The thing thing that gets me about that story is that he and his manager and someone else all sort of up in arms said, we thought she was 15, as if if that makes it somehow better that he'd married his cousin who was underage. It's so bizarre. I think this is also the the cultural gulf between Tennessee and the UK in 1962. Anyway, so Cliff says, you know, I never imagined meeting Jerry Lee in a transport cafe, and he was surprised that I was going all the way to Birmingham to see him. Well, the transport cafe concerned was certainly the blue boar at Watford Gap on the M1, (laughs) which in those days was one of the very few motorways in, in England. And uh, it was a legendary place where bands would meet before or after gigs. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. absolutely. You know, three Have in you the mo- three in the morning, you'd rock up to the, the the Blue Boar Watford Gap for your bacon and eggs. Then he talks about some of Jerry Lee's fans, some who had christened their baby Jerry Lee Lewis, L O U I S, which is about as far as you can go, I reckon. Jerry Lee signed the back of the birth certificate. And the last one is his first question when I met him was, "What about the killer hair?" Killer is a favourite word with Jerry right now. <laughs> he, of course, adopted it for the rest of his life. It's a very it's nice a fun. It's a fun piece, actually. Yeah. Sort of, he, he's reverential. He, I, didn't, he, I think he mentioned, I think he's the most important musician ever, kind of <laughs> thing. Which is, perhaps a slightly overstating that. But, but, but for, for any English musician, meeting an American hero in those days was, well, very rare for a start. You know, just a, the most exciting thing which can happen. Sure, no know. doubt, no doubt. Second piece, I kind of found this piece of Melody Maker. It's Nick Jones in 1967 on Psychedelia. And I just took it at face value at first. And then realised actually what it actually is, is an interview with Chet Helms. And this is from February 67. Chet Helms was the other San Francisco promoter and mover and shaker other than Bill Graham, but much more of a hippie himself. No one would accuse Bill Graham of being a hippie. Chet Helms ran something called The Family Dog, which was a rival promotion to the film or for bands like The Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and so on and so forth. And he'd 
come over to England, kind of like, I think, to stir the hippie pot over on this side oh, really? of the Atlantic. Okay. Um, I've seen a marvellous photograph of him outside McFisher's in Sloan Square in Chelsea from exactly this visit. You know, McFisher's was a chain of fishmongers back in the day. I think he basically hung out with all, all the groovy people at okay. International Times and so on. So Nick Jones, Nick Jones was the house hippie at Melody Maker. His father was Max Jones, the jazz journalist. And so there's a few quotes from Chet. He says, nobody's starting a new religion. There are no leery followers. There's just a religious spirit happening in America today. We've got more on the ball. We're not hustling kids into a ballroom. We're just running a continual happening thing. Happening thing. Happening thing. And the last one is great. Is that the audience entertains the groups. The lighting men entertain the audience. Everybody just turns everybody on. This is before the Summer of Love has started. Yeah. But, I mean, the other thing is that Nick Jones starts the piece by basically making fun of psychedelia from a, from a British perspective. <laughs> where he's sort of like... It, it seems like... Do you like, think so? Do you think well, so? Well, I mean, not making fun of it, but sort of saying that he feels that psychedelia is not in a good place. It's sort of the thing that people laugh at in Britain as compared to in the States, where it's not actually very cool. You, you wouldn't... It, it, it's, it's true. I think he's looking more where psychedelia has been laughed at by other people. Yeah, I, mean, it, I don't think he's laughing at it himself. No. I, I think that he's... he's he was actually of, very much part of it. Yeah. He's trying to, he's trying to demystify it, right. I suppose. Um, well, I mean, that was the purpose of the piece, yeah. but it ends up basically an interview with Chet Hull, yeah. which is great. Um, Nick himself, in his own words to me, turned on, tuned in and dropped out and ends up living in a squat in Lots Road with a band called Mighty Baby. So ten years before I did, we both at one stage in our lives shared a house with the marvellous guitar player Martin Stone. Oh, cool. Uh, which is kind of just a nice little connection. And he now runs a sort of art centre in Bournemouth and his father's archive. He was a very good writer. and It's, I, it's really nicely written again. It's a, it's, it's a shame that he doesn't really, you know, doesn't write sort of anymore and, and so on. But, but, but he was literally the house hippie at Melody yeah. Maker, you know. And every, <laughs> every, every magazine had to have one. Had to, yeah, where's, where do you keep them in the... In the, sort of, in the basement in yes. a cloud of smoke probably <laughs> absolutely gibbering to themselves once again we feature a Dawn James interview my absolute favourite 60s writer I think and this is with Peter Frampton who comes over as just the most ghastly self-centred almighty prat basically oh. good lord it's terrible uh, I mean just one quote is that I get sick when I realise that when I die this world will go on people eat steaks and go to pop tours He's just a boo-hoo. <laughs> a boo-hoo. I mean, he, he, he really... He comes over appallingly. In this, really badly. He? She asks him, what do you care about most? And he says, me. Yes. I care about myself. Yeah. It's like, what? I mean, yep. OK, I mean, at least you're honest, I suppose. But what's... One thing's the reason why I think Dawn James is such a good interviewer is she actually gets this sort of response, and also very nice responses out of people, that I've never read in any other interviews from that period. She's very alert to what people's characters are and drawing them out. And she gets she, she manages to get sort of very candid admissions of stuff in a way that <laughs> perhaps you wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, and there's one last quote from Peter Frampton. The most important thing about a girl is her intelligence. I don't know ones who nod and giggle and say yeah every now and again. Well, you know, fair enough, but anyway. Now, the next <laughs> one. Um, UCLA Daily Bruin, 1969. Uh, a few weeks back we had the wonderful John Mendelssohn yeah. here. And one of the things oh, we were what a great. talking about was his... Led Zeppelin 1 and 2 reviews for Rolling Stone, which led to the war between Rolling Stone but and he, Led Zeppelin. he got that gig first by writing for the Daily Brew, which is the student, student newspaper at 
at the UCLA. So. Yeah, that, that's right. And uh, this, is, this review is extraordinary because he basically sneers at both Van Morrison's Astral Weeks and Led Zeppelin 1 in the same <laughs> column, which is almost record-breaking. You know? And he says, Page wound up with an extraordinarily talented arranger named John Paul Jones, who he turned into a wallflower bass player. A drum who got a lot of attention by soloing with his hands while backing Tim Harden, and a prissy, dimply howler named Robert Plant to sing and play harp. And then later on he says, There's a great deal to be learned from the disappointment of this debut album. It should now be perfectly clear to Page and his friends that you don't make 15-hour albums anymore, that guitar virtuosity does not a producer or editor or writer make, and that there's one thing we don't need is another lazy, self-indulgent contemporary blues group from England. <laughs> Uh, Rolling Stone saw this and asked him to write, rewrite the review for them, yeah. and uh, that kicked off a his career in, in Rolling Stone and so on and so. And forth. really upset Led Zeppelin, which is <laughs> quite entertaining. <laughs> ah, ah. So, talking about contemporary blues, is we got Joel Selvin's obituary of Mike Bloomfield from San Francisco Chronicle in '81. Mike Bloomfield legendarily played on uh, Dylan's first electric performances and was in the Paul Busfield Blues Band. And then his career kind of petered out. He had a band called Electric Flag, which didn't do what everyone expected it to do. And he ended up with a serious drug problem. I believe he played music for pornography movies and things oh, like really? that. Okay. He, you know, it, it, bit of a fall from grace Bit there. of a fall from grace. And Joel Selvin says, Bloomfield was a troubled soul. He suffered insomnia. He missed gigs. He drank and had drug problems. And there had been previous brushes with death from overdoses. He tried many times to straighten up his personal and professional problems. It is a sad story. Bloomfield was a sweet, remarkably endearing gentleman with wit, brains and a peerless talent at slow blues. Ironically, Bloomfield, despite his disadvantages, lived his life in much of the same misery and turmoil and torment that filled the lives of the bluesmen who originally inspired him. It's always a shame when, when that misery and torment then stops you from actually... Well, doing the, the music that you might be able to express it through. but Well, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Bloomfield's odd. I mean, he's far from my favourite white blues <clears throat> guitar player. Personally, I think he's overrated. I think that there were much better players than him, but he was important. Blue, the Buffield Blues Band were interesting, and they were from Chicago. They were hanging out in the black clubs, were jamming with the black musicians as right back to the early 60s. The guys they were playing with were astounded by these young, mostly Jewish white kids coming <laughs> up and playing blues. blues yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and Butterfield, I think, was, was very important and made a couple of really important records. But So there we go. And then the last thing, the marvellous Caroline Sullivan, who is, I think, one of the best writers about pure pop. About pop. I mean, yeah, she really gets pop, yeah. which is the nice thing, but you can tell when she's writing about pop that she likes it and understands why it's important to people. Absolutely. She herself was something of a Bay City Rollers groupie in the 70s and wrote a very good book about that, which is really, really worth getting. So she understands what it's like to be a fan, a, a, yeah. a, a teenage pop fan. And this is about what she regards as the currently rather disappointing wave of boy bands and the way that they aren't as significant to their audience as the previous generation. And also she's quite incisive about why that might be yeah. as well, because she talks about them being manufactured as, yeah. opposed to, as opposed to organic. Well, um, absolutely, I mean... They don't even know each other's surnames, I think, is the sort of... You're beating me to so, it. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Take that and worlds apart. Don't give girls much to get their teeth into. They're virtual clones of each other, despite the former being white and the latter sporting a contrived multicultural look. Both groups were recruited through advertisements... The world's a part one, receiving 10,000 replies. People say you're manufactured, and they're absolutely right, is the candid admission of world Apart's Dan Boyer. 
but kids will only tolerate that to a point. Worlds apart don't feel like a gang, observes Smash Hits, as Alex Caddis. You sort of feel like they don't know each other's surnames. And uh, I think that's, that's... Yeah, it's funny also, Bros gets a, gets a mention in this piece as well. And Bros, <laughs> a band that I wasn't aware of until the first week of this year, <laughs> uh, suddenly it's just everywhere in my life after the, the, the documentary. And then we've had sort of four pieces or something that have mentioned Bros in, in the four weeks of January. I know, it's been, it's, it's, it, it is astonishing. Um, but the, funnily enough, she, Caroline Sullivan sort of talks about them, them actually being more organic and authentic which i i think is, is i think what, it's fair is, it's fair the boy bands in the sort of the late 80s early 90s one or two of them were manufactured but the, what, there was always a sense that they kind of they knew each other's surname right. yeah the, the it's a good way of putting it i think it's a very good piece and as i said caroline sullivan is a wonderful observer of that particular phenomenon how about you what have how you about got? me what have i what have i got well just to jump back a tad, yeah. going back to 1964, as previously mentioned, I'm a bit into jazz, should we say. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a, a great piece about Julian Cannonball Adderley from Billboard in October 1964, uncredited writer. And he talks about not believing in the intellectual-only approach of avant-garde jazz fans and says that jazz is fun and people should remember this and stop worrying about intellectualising, which I think is a really genuine and valid point about yeah. particularly that time, the mid-60s in jazz, where a lot of people were sort of sneering about people being, being commercial and mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And I think it's justified for, for Cannonball to be saying, look, this is what I want to do. I like mm. entertaining people. I like having fun. You've got to put that in the context that the new music, basically what we call free jazz today, was at its sort of height at this Absolutely. point. Ornette Coleman, people like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. He says, now jazzmen are injecting deliberate complexities into their styles. And I really like this. He said, it's morally wrong to expect people to pay for satisfying your ego, he says, (laughs) with conviction. I mean, it's it's interesting that that Adley, um, around that time, got Joe Zawinul's band, had that big hit with Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. And that it was then the likes of Joe Zawinul who took a sort of popularisation into the sort of the the jazz fusion sort of territory right. with Weather Report. So there is a sort of there's a commonality there. Yeah, right? a continuity of, yeah. of not necessarily you know, being about the audience still uh, when when the, the free jazz were about the process of, of creating. Not that there's anything wrong with that either, it's just a, a different approach and I think both sometimes people don't accept as real jazz the, the more commercial side of it. Yeah. When that's odd because it, it kind of denies the musicians the choice to go into doing what they wanted to do. It also ignores the fact that actually the idea of jazz as art, capital A, was a fairly recent phenomenon, basically a post-war phenomenon, starting basically with bebop and going through from there. But Miles Davis loved having a large audience and and speaking directly to a large audience, however fascinating his stuff was. Definitely. And then you go back before the war, it was pop music. Duke Ellington was pop music. Count Basie was pop music. Oh, no doubt. Last night I was at a gig at the Spice of Life in Soho that Mm -hmm. was London City Big Band doing a Count Basie plus Sinatra at the Sands kind of vibe. Yeah. It absolutely is pop, and it's it's delightful pop. I mean, the, the band were actually 
really tight and great. Yeah. It was really exciting to see, but no, 100% yeah. pop. I just find it really interesting that by 64, people having to say, A, why are we playing to diminishing audiences? And right. ja- the jazz audience was really shrinking in a hurry. And there's a sense that you know, we've, le- we've left our audience behind. Now, I happen to, l- I love a lot of bebop and so on and yeah. so forth. But, you know, it's, it's hard to dance to Charlie Parker. You, you, you can twitch. Yeah. You can twitch. It's kind of hard to dance to. What next? What next? I couldn't, really couldn't resist. There's a Super Tramp piece from 1975. Uh, I'm pretty fond of Super Tramp, actually, which, which nobody else in the office either understands or agrees with. Although, just to shame our wonderful Paul Kelly I put on Supertramp's first album which is actually what I wanted to bring up about this their debut album just called Supertramp before they kind of got big and at one point he goes what's this I quite like it before I, before I told him so there you go Paul exposed exposed but no but so this is actually a really long piece 4,500 word history of Supertramp up until 1975 when they were really starting to get big with Crime of the Century and yeah. then Crisis What Crisis yeah. the nice thing that I like is that it talks about their first album, which actually had a different lineup, mm-hmm. it still had obviously Rick Davies and Roger Hodgson. Yes. But different rest of the band. But what I like about Supertramp, the debut album, is that you can see the seeds of the ideas that are going to grow into the rest of, right. of what's. You know, it's not a terribly distinguished mm. album, it's, it's nothing particularly remarkable in and of itself, but you can see where yeah. they're going to go and where they want to go. What I liked about the article is it tells you a process of getting a band together. In- in quite interesting detail. Yes. Just how you find musicians and what they were doing before and so on and so forth. And it's actually the story of a lot of bands. Yeah. But you don't... You try often, one thing and yeah. it fails and you try another thing and that fails as well. And but then you don't often hear that story. No. And, 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 and I thought that was pretty... So it's, uh, yes, it's Pete Mikowski or Mikowski. Is it Mikowski or Mikowski? I must ask Pete so we can get it right <laughs> next time. What next? So then I've got a sort of trifecta of live reviews. Trifecta from, of live reviews. There you go. <laughs> I needed like that. Um, from from the, the noughties and 2010s, namely James Blunt at Shepherd's Bush Empire in 2005. And James Blunt is sort of much maligned, sort of... Rightly so. Yeah, but he's actually extremely funny on Twitter. He's really... You should, you should check him out because he's hysterical about... He just... Because he gets a lot of shit, basically. He but he goes he goes after his critics in a, in a very funny, self aware kind of way. Uh-huh. But I like the, from that article talking about the music. But then that's not all he has going for him. His looks are a shaggy head combination of Tom Cruise and Jeff Buckley. And at the Empire, many members of his substantial female following nearly collapsed when he announced that in his new video he will get his kit off. <laughs> it, it is very funny. The other two, loyal Karner at Garage. In 2016, Benjamin Coyle Lana, whose stage name is Loyal Karna, Spoonerism, uh, who's <laughs> kind of seen as seen as a sort of sentimental face of grime, although that's I think a slightly simplistic characterization. Uh-huh. He's he's a pretty interesting guy, uh, and he's not afraid to be emotional and be honest and upfront. And he says at this gig, everybody says I'm fucking sad. Of course I'm fucking sad. I miss my fucking dad. And I think on its own that maybe sounds a bit a bit simple, but his honesty and his emotional rawness, I hate that word, but sure. his emotional rawness in his music really comes through and he, he's an interesting character. I think there's a lot of good stuff hopefully to come from okay, him. Okay, I'm just checking him out. Will you say it is grime or is it sort of nearer hip-hop? It's or? Near, I, I would say it's South London hip-hop yeah. more than it is grime, yeah. to be honest. I, I mean, I, I mean, some, of the, some of the beats and some of the production. I'm fond of grime insofar as, do I listen to much of it? No, I don't, but it's because it's not for me. 
but it's a music that I recognise that comes out of the city that I live in. For sure. Um, I actually uh, grew up on the Crossways... Well, I grew up... I lived for 15 years on yeah. the Crossways Estate in Bow, which is where Grime more or less started. Yes. I must have had Dizzy Rascal running around my knees <laughs> when he was 10 years old. And I hear it, and I hear the voices, and it's authentic, mostly black, but also white London, of you know, working-class council estate London. And, and I really like that. And it's been really exciting to see how that has actually become a bit more of a global phenomenon now yeah. with people like Stormzy yeah. and Skepta yeah. getting some of the recognition that they yeah. absolutely deserve. Quite honestly, for... it's a lot more interesting than much recent American hip-hop. It's seen. true, it's true. Yeah. Because it has something to say, yeah. because it because it comes, as you were saying, from a, from a genuine place. Yes, I think absolutely. It's, it's, it's really good. And the last thing, a sort of slightly lukewarm review of a, of a producer who I really like called Muramasa, who's a Guernsey lad, um, <laughs> <laughs> from, from Stephen Dalton in The Times in October 2017. Stephen Dalton describes it as a smorgasbord board of musical styles from the young electro-pop producer that made for a pleasant but ultimately forgettable show, frictionless, weightless, stateless, easy to enjoy, but scant minutes later just as easily forgotten. And now, Muramasa, I think, is actually... Again, someone who's worth watching. He's worked with the aforementioned Stormzy. He's worked with a London singer called Neo, who's making some pretty yes. big tracks. And he's worked with Nile Rodgers on the pretty disappointing recent Chic album that Nile <laughs> Rodgers produced. As a producer, I think he's well worth sure. watching. I think it's always difficult for a producer to make a good live show if it's just them and, and some synths and some computers. Yes. I've seen it done really well. More often than not, I've seen it done it, really It does say boringly. in the review that he tries to break that up by strapping a guitar and things like that, but... It's you difficult. Know, if you're yeah. only, it's it's difficult to to create an atmosphere when there's just one yeah. of you. Yeah. And one more thing that I picked out: <laughs> um, an unpleasantly positive review of Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines from Rob Tannenbaum in Rolling Stone in August 2013, saying that here he makes a near perfect summer record, by acting like his life is as perfect as his hair. <laughs> and I, I mean, Robin Thicke's just a despicable character, really. I, know, I don't think any of us have got a pretty good word to say about him. The one thing I'll say about that album, I mean, a lot of it was produced by Pharrell. Yes. Who I think is one of, is the great kind of pop, soul talent in in the world today yeah and and in the last you know 15 yeah. 20 years been involved in so many so much stuff just great records hit, i mean hit after hit after yeah. hit i mean you know i loved happy i mean you know it's you know it's i love so, get lucky as yeah. well I mean, oh, get lucky was fantastic great like, track i mean happy as my fr- friend and fellow rbp writer bill brewster said is essentially an old-fashioned northern soul stomper sort of reimagined for the 2012s yeah like. absolutely but what's interesting for me about that whole situation with blurred lines obviously got a lot of flack appropriately enough for for its rapey lyrics and and general <laughs> misogyny rapey lyrics. I mean, that, that's that's actually it was the someone said that about the lyrics and that's one of the things that, that caused all that controversy to kick off because people suddenly put into one word basically what was so uncomfortable about these uh, with these a, lyrics with an accompanying video which was oh just god horrible. the video is it's just um, gross and then of course there was a huge lawsuit because the Marvin Gaye estate there's that as well piled on some uh, fun stuff about uh, Marvin Gaye's marvelous ninety-seven-seven got to give it up I've listened to both of them and I'm not entirely convinced by the gay estate case. They do like throwing lawsuits at people for, yeah. for, for... I mean, I get the similarity, but I think there has to be room. And I think it's a dangerous precedent mm. to set 
Because it did win the, mm. the law. They, yeah, they, they did. They did. Uh, it's a little, it's slightly I, I mean, worrying I, in a sense. I find it a much vaguer case than, let's say, the Chiffon's My Sweet Lord against George Harrison yeah. um, uh, case, where it was the same song, the same with just different words. words you, yeah. you know. Um, so, but you, can you trademark a groove? Uh, <laughs> no, my, I don't. My think. feeling is no as well. Yeah. But there you go. Although it was kind of nice to have. Robin Thicke loses. Yes, absolutely. But he's equally, just such a reprehensible it, it was, character. It was sorry, I'm sorry that Pharrell Williams lost. Well, I thought it's interesting how I mean, obviously Robin Thicke did not make it out of that whole saga very very well because he's he's just kind did, of didn't slimy. His, didn't his subsequent album sell something like seven thousand copies? I mean, it it really stiffed. tanked. It and absolutely. The, tanked. His subsequent album was about so his wife left him <laughs> and <laughs> I think her name's Paula or something. And that's the that's the name of of his album. And the lead single of it was was Get Her Back, which is a, it's a sort of <laughs> album. That is, it's such a bizarre, like, why would you do that? It's just like a public declaration of, of pathetic. Oh, it's fantastic. Really, I don't know. So that's pretty much our lot that's for our today, lot, isn't think, it? Yeah. Um, thank you very much for Jasper, Miris and Bowie for stepping into... The, the, it's the, been a pleasure. The, the hot seat vacated by my <laughs> colleague Barney Hoskins. The inimitable Barney Hoskins. It's been fun, though. Brilliant. Next week, touch wood, we've got the wonderful Michelle Kirsch coming in to... Again, Barney will be away. She'll be depping instead Great. of Jasper. Though, you know, maybe, maybe the three of us. We'll, maybe, we'll, we'll, maybe. We'll, we'll see how that goes, which I'm tremendously looking forward to. Wonderful writer for the New Musical Express and I think City Limits, maybe in Time Out. And she's also got a... Memoir coming out in March, oh, so exciting. that's all excellent, great. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go out with a last clip from dear old Sidney Vicious uh, <laughs> talking about his inimitable version of My Way. Yes, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. See Bye-bye. you next week. Bye. Why did you decide on My Way? I didn't. They asked me to do it, and at first I absolutely refused because they wanted me to do it absolutely straight. But then I hit on this idea of doing the first verse in a, in a like Frank Sinatra kind of way, but changing all all the words. I, I've changed all the words, or all, all the words in the entire song are completely different now. And I and I thought that if I did that and had the first verse like Frank Sinatra, and then then. It, all of a sudden it rock out and like rock and roll you know and a snidey voice to go with it <laughs> that it would be like people would want be really fooled by the beginning and wonder what was going on then all of a sudden it would go crash you know and i think ah oh, yes this is it <laughs> this was what we were waiting for <laughs> That was Sid Vicious in conversation with John Tobler, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Mark Pringle and Jasper Murison-Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. (laughs) 